Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So if you'll grab your Bible, we're in Revelations 2, 18 this morning. In the year 2000, something really extraordinary happened for the first time. I mean, it was unprecedented in history. The leader of the Catholic Church asked for forgiveness for all the things that the Catholic Church had done wrong over the centuries. Never happened before. Because the Catholic Church, like any other big organization, I mean, you could, you could almost plug in Southern Baptist, but it was extraordinary because the Catholic Church has been around for, for a couple thousand years. You know what I'm saying? But you could almost say any large organization could do this uh, to a certain extent. But the, the Catholic Church, they, they asked for forgiveness because, the, you know, for a lot of people, the Catholic Church could do no wrong. The decisions they made were always right. For some reason in leadership, we think that. And suddenly the Pope comes out and asks for forgiveness for things like the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, for silence for the slavery in America, and silence during the Holocaust. You know, it was amazing that the Pope was asking this forgiveness from from not only the Lord, but also from us, from humans. Now, it was interesting, the reaction around the world. Some were saying, well, (laughs) it's about time. And others were saying, you know, well, why are we apologizing for the Crusades? That's like a thousand years ago. Who cares? The New York Times was actually livid. They were upset that the Pope didn't, you know, didn't apologize more to women and homosexuals. They were really mad that the Pope still believed that homosexuality was not a biblical thing. Now, There was also a group of Wicca witches who got together and were mad that the Pope didn't apologize to them because the Pope didn't believe that they were, you know, a good thing. So every other group that disagreed with them said, well, why aren't you apologizing to us? Because it's all about inclusiveness. Yeah, something like that. It's all about being included, isn't it? It's all about, well, you have to accept who I am and what I believe. It's interesting because the church has to stand for something. The church has to say, these are the things that we stand on. These are the things that we believe. These are the things that we hold firm to. Because every church should stand for something. This is right. This is godly. That is not godly. So therefore, we don't believe in that. Because if you stand for something, you automatically what? Stand against something. You can't have it any other way. So at, one, at what point, when you stand for something, do you include something or you exclude something? 
I mean, was the New York Times right? Who gets to say to the church, these rules are acceptable and these rules are not acceptable? Who gets to say that that the morals and values that the church should have is right or wrong? Because we're really in a new phase of American history. It really kind of started in, in the 60s, and the families really started kind of falling apart. And, 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 you know, so a lot of good things came out of the 60s. I mean, you know, we got rid of segregation, and we're still, you know, as America, we're still working on that. And the whole, you know, um, one class against another class, one pe- group of people hating another group of people, that's a, that's a constant thing in, in human society. And, and we're, you know, you got to work through those things. So good things came out of that. Uh, women's, uh, women's lib, um, you know, there was some extreme on that, but, but some great things came out of that. Women started standing up and saying, I can make it in this world. And a lot of great things came out of that. But also one of the things that came out of, out of the 60s was the break apart of the society and the, and, the, and the family. And one big thing in this new era is that America now has a sense that no one can say they are right. Because that is absolutely arrogant. You can't say you are right. The minute you say that you are right, you are now what? An intolerant person. And that is wrong. Because in olden times, what did tolerance mean? Tolerance meant, well, I disagree with you. I don't like what you're saying. I don't think you're right, but you have the right to think it, and you have the right to exist. That's what it used to mean. What it now means in American society is you cannot say you are right. And you have to agree that the other person's opinion is equally valid, and that opinion, even if you disagree, is right also. So everybody's right. You know, you can't play dodgeball nowadays. You get somebody out. You know, little kids, you can't keep the score in the game because somebody might lose. And we've got to have winners in this world. We can't have losers in this world, right? Oh, wait, I can't say the word right. Correct? What do you what do you say in there? Everybody's right. That's the new definition of tolerance. Patrick Henry, a founder of our uh, nation, one of the founding fathers, said, "Give give me liberty or give me death." He also said, "Sir, I do not agree with a word you say, but I but I will defend to the death your right to say it." See, that's what tolerance used to be. I don't agree with you, but I'm going to allow you to say it, and I'm not going to try to kill you, as some in this world try to do nowadays. It's totally changed. Now I have to totally agree with you, or I'm being intolerant. No longer are we allowed to have absolute truths in this world. This is really sweeping through our educational systems, especially in the college uh, arena and stuff. And, and like the news that we receive, you know, our government and their decisions are made by popular vote. You would have never seen on a ballot any time in history up until now of what defines a marriage. I mean, it's obvious. Man and woman possible natural procreation. 
Man and man, no possible procreation. Woman and woman, no possible procreation in a natural sense. You would have never seen this in a supreme court. But now we no longer know our values. We figure our morals and our values by having what? A vote in society. That's what, you know, that's what America has become. We don't believe in absolute truth. See, absolute truth says there are principles, there are morals, there are values that exist independent of humanity. Our culture says that there are no longer absolute truths out there. We decide what is truth. And therefore, whatever we're comfortable with, there, that, that must be the truth. Because I'm comfortable with that. Today, society is saying the Christian church needs to be more tolerant. That means more inclusive. Open your arms who the, uh, you know, to those who don't believe what you believe. Allow different people to come in and lead what you don't believe. Now, we're going to get to, the, uh, to some other stuff and accept it in a, in, a, in a second. My mind gets ahead of my voice sometimes. I'm not saying that we don't open our arms to people. What I'm saying is we don't open our arms to those that don't believe what we, what we don't believe and then allow them to teach that in the church. That's what I'm trying to say. A lot of people say, well, it's a new day. It's a new time. Get with the, you know, get, get with the time. Get with the culture. Be a tolerant church. Now, I have a problem with that. See, because our truths don't come from a vote. Our truths come from a creator God that made this world, that made us, that loved us. Jesus leads the church, so he's the one that gets to set the truths within the church. He's the one that says what is right is right and what is wrong is wrong. So we... We think that we have problems today with churches being too tolerant and and not sticking with the Bible. But really, it's no different than biblical times. Society's kind of always been like this. There's a little church in Thyatira that, that, that had some issues. It allowed many different practices and beliefs within their church. So today we're going to look at how Jesus responded to them. How did he encourage them? What did he tell them? In fact, we pick it up in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 18. It says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire, and whose, whose feet are like bur- burnished bronze. Now, Thyatira is, a, is an inland coast. It's, a, it's on the inland coast of, of present-day Turkey is where it's at. It's not really a port, but it was a major road, a major thoroughfare going through there. They had no big, you know, shrines, no big temples. You know, we kind of talked about the other ones that, you know, they really worshiped this God or they had this up on the hill and all this. They didn't really have a lot of that. Christians really weren't persecuted much there. But one thing that Thyatira is known for was their trade guilds. Now, another word you can use there is unions, and, and I'm not necessarily, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to associate unions today with unions back then, but that's kind of where the whole concept of, of people banding together, and, and so these trade guilds, these unions of people gathering together, you know, you had a, a purple cloth dealers, 
you know, and they all came together. And, you know, you had this camel trader union. You had the, the silver union. You had all these different things and had these trade guilds. And they were like, you know, powerful labor unions. And you could not succeed in business unless you belonged to them. So how this worked is that each union would have a particular god in charge of their trade guild. So they would come together and they would, you know, uh, worship this god at their meetings. It was the only thing that this place was known for. And you had this little church in the middle of it that says, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, you might remember in chapter 1, we kind of hit on it at the very beginning of this, where, where John sees Jesus, and the image that John sees uh, relates to the churches. In Ephesus, he says, or to the church of Ephesus, he says, tell them he who holds the seven stars in his hands. In Smyrna, he says, you know, he who is dead has come to life. Pergamum, he said, he who has sharp two-edged sword is talking to you. In other words, he's going to get right to the truth. And Thyatira, he says, tell them he who, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze is talking to them. Now, you and I go, well, what's up with that? I don't really understand that. We'd read it and kind of breeze right on past it. But to a Jewish person, they would know exactly what he's talking about here. There are two images of judgment. In the Old Testament, whenever there was a huge angelic beings were showing up, they had eyes like, like burning flames. You know, the angels just, their eyes were, you know, that's why a lot of people, you know, the angels said, do not be afraid, because the angels look very different. It was a way to say God can see right to your innermost parts and understand who you are. God can burn through all the lies, all the deceptions, all the fronts that we like to put up when we, you know, go, go places. We go see people, we, we, we start to build relationships, and there's walls that we kind of put up. Well, I'll get to know them to this point, but I'm not going to let them know about this part of me. I'm not going to open that up. And, and the, the eyes say, man, I, I get right past through all that stuff. I know who you really are. The feet meant red-hot, glowing metal, like in a metal in a furnace. To a Hebrew, this was a sign of judgment. In other words, we can trample the enemy and there's nothing they can do. They can just burn up. So the church receives this letter that starts out saying, God is the ruler of all and, and the judge of all. I'd be like, huh, I don't know if I want to keep reading this letter. Can we just kind of put it away? No. Verse 19, it says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Woo! Okay, this, this is an okay letter so far. I mean, he's telling them, well, you guys are doing some great stuff. You've got good works. You've got good deeds. You, 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 your love is strong. Your faith is strong. Your, your perseverance, you're doing all right here. You're even doing more than what you were at the very beginning. It's kind of like us, right? When we become a Christian, we start out great. We start out just, man, every little thing, I, yeah, I, I want to do something for God. Let, let me serve. Let me do all these different things. And then over time, we get tired. I mean, that's what happens to our bodies, right? I mean, my son driving off in a little car. I'm sitting there going, I've walked up and down the street four or five times. I'm getting tired. He's doing pretty good. Just let him go. Well, you can't quite do that. So Lisa runs after him, you know. 
But these guys, no, they, they've held up. They're doing great things. And then in verse 20, it says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Now, one thing I, I kind of noticed and I want to hit right off the bat is Jesus doesn't have a problem with this person being a woman. Jesus doesn't even have a, a, you know, seem to have a problem with her being a prophet, uh, you know, prophetess. Because, you know, we see in the scriptures where, where, where different women are active in, in, in the Lord's kingdom. And, and you have women who are prophets. Even in the New Testament, we've seen that. The problem that God has is she is misleading the flock. She's misleading the people. And he even gives her time to repent. And we see God's grace right there. It's kind of interesting. William Barclay, a, a great uh, scholar, biblical scholar, wrote 53 years ago. So think about this. 53 years ago, he said, On the surface, the church of Thyatira was strong and flourishing. If a stranger went into it, uh, you would be impressed with its boundless energy and generous liberality and apparent steadfastness. For all of that, there was something essential missing. Here's a warning. A church that is crowded with people in which it is a hive of energy is not necessarily a real church. It is possible for a church to be crowded because its people come to be entertained instead of instructed and to be soothed instead of being confronted with its sin and offer in the offer of salvation. It may be a highly successful Christian club rather than a Christian congregation. Wow, I mean, that, that was written 53 years ago, and I think that totally relates to today. I wonder what he would say about the, the state of the church overall today. I know some great, wonderful, huge churches that are doing wonderful ministry that are just godly-centered churches. But I also know some huge churches that's all about inclusiveness. It's all about come as you are and teach whatever you want to teach and we'll just talk about the grace and mercy of God and his acceptance of all and never teach the word of God about how we should be, how we should act, what should we do right, and what, what is right and what is wrong, what is absolute truth. And they're wonderful big ministries, but they're not getting to the truth of the word. We're not here for entertainment. I mean, we want to have fun, we want to have some good fellowship, but we're here to worship and we're here to learn about God. So how did the church and Thyatira do this? Well, they opened their door to all believers. They didn't stick to the fundamentals. Does that sound familiar today? He says, you have a problem. You have Jezebel. Now, Jezebel is not her real name. Jesus is, is comparing her to an Old Testament woman in 1 Kings lived in about 874 B.C., and her husband was King Ahab, and he was king over the, I think it was the, the northern kingdom. Uh, David, uh, the kingdom David had established were, was split and become corrupted by his grandsons, and they split into Israel and Judah, and Israel was in the north, and they became kind of the, the big brother, the more powerful of the two kingdoms, and Ahab became the king of the north, and he was a very wicked king. 
They, they introduced all kind of evil and wicked things into their society. Um, you know, here the people are supposed to be reflecting God. God said, I'm going to choose you, Abraham. I'm going to choose you uh, to, to be my descendants and to show the world my grace and my mercy and how I can treat people. You're going to reflect who I am. And at this point, they weren't. They didn't stay true to God. And Ahab allowed every type of God to be worshipped in his midst. All-inclusive. You couldn't be intolerant toward other people and what they believe. They had Baal, they have, you know, they had the, an asterisk and all these others. That they, you know, society uh, were worshipping all these awful gods, child sacrifices. I mean, think about that for a second. I mean, don't think about that. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's so awful, you're sitting there going, come on. And finally, get, God gets you know, fed up enough to do something about it. And it starts out in 1 Kings 16, and, and the story does, and, and the judgment comes in, uh, in chapter 21 of 1 Kings. And, and I'll, I'll go there. Elijah comes and says to them, The word of the Lord came to Elijah the, the Tishbite. Go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where the dogs licked up Neboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so you have found me, my enemy, I've found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to bring disaster on you. And this is what God is saying to him. I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house uh, like that of uh, Jeroboam, son of Naboth, uh, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah. Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused uh, Israel to sin. Also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of uh, Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. There, will, uh, there was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. So how much do you think God liked Ahab and Jezebel? I mean, think of the evil that they had done. I'm going to kill you and your wife, and you're not even going to have a burial. Wild dogs are going to tear you apart. Every male I'm going to wipe out. So by the time, uh, you know, you get to the New Testament, do you have many kids named Ahab and Jezebel? No, absolutely not. I mean, those are personal non grata names. I mean, you just leave those alone. And Jesus says to this church, you are tolerating the woman Jezebel in your church. It's not a good thing, not a good association here. So what is this woman doing? Three things. One, she calls herself a prophetess. It's always a bad sign when somebody appoints themselves to be in charge. It's a bad sign when somebody comes into a church and is not around that long and says, okay, I'm going to be in charge of this. 
and you just have to deal with it. You know, they don't say it like that, but that's how it happens, you know? Instead of letting the group decide, yeah, that, that person's really shown themselves to be godly. Okay, let's, let's pull them into to leadership. Let's do something here. They just walk in and say, I am the leader. I speak the word of God. I am the voice of God. They're usurping the authority in the church. So that's the first thing. Then she's teaching two false things, and we see this in verse 20. It says that uh, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, the Bible's view of sex is completely different than culture's view. Culture says, well, this is how it should be. I mean, just open up a magazine. Just go watch a, a, you know, a movie that has a steamy scene in it. And, and for some reason, we think every marriage should be like that all the time. I mean, that's what the world says is, you know, it's all about sex. The Bible is very consistent about relationships and sex. Four things the Bible says is always wrong, never right. You cannot justify these. One is adultery is always wrong. No matter what society says, adultery is wrong. Should not be accepted. Secondly is homosexuality, behavior. That behavior is wrong. No matter if the populace says it's right. As with many sins, you have to hate the sin and not the sinner. I want to be very clear on that. It doesn't mean you, got, you, you completely stay away, you completely avoid, never even talk to somebody of this persuasion. On the contrary, we're supposed to love them. My wife and I, you know, being, a, you know, living up in the Bay Area for a while and stuff, we, we have several friends that, that are this persuasion, and they know we totally disagree with their lifestyle, but we still love them. We still have a, a, a friendship. Now, that friendship only goes so far, of course. We don't accept their lifestyle, but we still love them. We can't stand their actions. It is biblically wrong. Even when society says it's okay, and you better accept it. Thirdly, The Bible is very clear. Sex outside of marriage is wrong. The Bible says that it's always wrong. Culture says it's a norm. In fact, one of the studies that just came out uh, this last week said that that there's something like 62% of couples now are moving in together first before they even consider being uh, married just to see if if it would work out or not. The Bible says... That is wrong. Society says, man, this is, we don't even, this is not even a point of discussion. It's so accepted. Fourthly, and we really don't deal with this one on a daily basis, but in biblical times they did. They used sex as an act of worship to pagan gods. So you would go to the temple prostitute to worship. Bible says that's completely wrong. So what's happening in this church is somehow this self-appointed usurper of authority came in and started teaching things that were not in the Bible. We don't know if it was in a, like a, a home study, a, a small group, and then it came into the church, or, or whether they were in the church. or We don't know exactly what happened, but she was leading people astray. The truth was set aside for the changing of the culture. The truth was set aside for the changing of the culture. Think about that. Well, we got to, you know, the church has got to keep up with the times. We've got to change because society has changed, right? You know, God expects us to fit in. 
And many of the people are going, okay, yeah, sounds good to us. It's an easier road to take. Jesus comes in and says, whoa, 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 wait a second. I don't think so. You can't buy into the culture stuff. Now, the other thing that she was teaching wrong was eating food sacrificed to idols. Not a huge problem here in America. I mean, when's the last time you've gone to, you know, somebody's house and they sacrificed a bowl right there for you to eat and and put it in front of their idol, right? I mean, it just, that happened to me last week, right? No. But, you know, they would go to their trade guilds, their unions, you know, whatever, once a month, whatever their meeting time was. And that's exactly what would happen. They would start the meeting out by sacrificing some type of animal to the god of that union. Then they would roast that animal to that pagan god, and then they would eat it. So if you had a business in that society, you know, sold T-shirts down at the local boutique or something, you go to the T-shirt salesman trade union, you know, that, that meeting, and it you know, starts out all sober and stuff, and you know, almost like some company Christmas parties you hear about. It, you know, by the end of the evening, it's pretty uh, interesting. And, you know, and for the next six months, they talk about so-and-so and what they did at that party, right? That's the same thing's happening in these trade guild unions uh, gathering. Jezebel was teaching to the church, well, I mean, you've you, you got to do business the business way. I mean, if you're going to make it in the society, you've you got to operate a certain way in business, and this is, this is the way to do it. This is the real world. You have to participate in this. I mean, if you don't, your business is going to suffer. I, I know that God has the standards. I know that God has this truth, but, but to survive, you know, Monday through Friday, do it the world's way, but, you know, you know we're working in the big boys' rules here. And then comes the weekends, go, go worship God on, on Sunday on the Sabbath, but then the rest of the time, you got to do it this way. I think there's a lot of Christians in today's world that are living just like this. Come to church, have morals and values. You know what God expects, uh, uh, you know, sitting there going, I know what God expects of me now, how I should treat people, how I should love people, how I should respond to people, be a spokesman of truth. And then they go back out into the real world and say, well, you don't know what i got to deal with. I mean, there's certain rules that I, gotta, I, I have to obey in the business world here, and this is just how it, how it has to happen. Well, then I would say, well, whose God are they worshiping then? Who's the God of their life? Is it Jesus or whatever business they're involved in? See, whichever values you default to during the time of conflict, during the time of business, that is your God. It doesn't matter what you say at church. It's what values you default to. Jezebel was teaching this group, you have to do it the business world's way. They do it that way, you should too. So Jesus shows up and he's mad at her for two things. He, you know, t- her teaching of the, the, the culture's view of, of sex and then also teaching that the business world really is their God. So what does Jesus have to say about it? Verse 21, he says, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. We see here the the mercy of God. Because if I was God, I would have been like, that's it, she's gone, boom, dead. Squish her like a little bug. But I'm not God, thank God. 
We see God's mercy here. He always gives people time. No matter how bad or awful our behavior gets, God will give us chance after chance. He wants to continually to, uh, continue to give us a chance so that we may come back to him before he has to deal with us on a larger level. Well, he'd given this chance to her. And then in verse 22, it says, So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. And we're going to talk about that in a second. We're not talking physical children here, but those that follow her. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impo- impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you, have, uh, what you have until I come. This is not the Jesus that we see in the movies. The docile, congenial little you know, guy, long hair, the beard. And all, you know. This is not the nice little, come here little children type of guy. I mean, this is uh, the warring Jesus. This is, uh, you know, time of repentance has been offered and it's over, and now it's time for judgment. Get over here. That's the type of Jesus we're talking about this. You know, we, we, love, the, the, we love the congenial Jesus, don't we? We love the, the mercy and the grace Jesus. We don't like the truth and judgment Jesus. But sometimes the truth and judgment Jesus has to enter the picture. The people who are, you know, slightly dabbling in in what she was teaching. He says to them, I'm going to make them sick. And I want them to feel that sickness until they realize what they're doing is wrong. And then they draw, you know, drawn back to me. That's the whole point. He doesn't want to destroy them. He wants them to come back to him. Make your life miserable until you come back. I don't like that. Man, I don't like that. There's been times when I'm sitting there going, okay. This has gone too far. This, this is God doing this because he wants me to repent of whatever this is and come back to him. But her children, those who have bought completely into it, those that are totally 100% following her, he goes, you're, you're too destructive to the church. I'm going to have to kill you. This is not the mercy, you know, tender Jesus that we, you know, that we all like to be taught about. This is the Jesus who establishes absolute truth. The one who says, I don't care what the culture is saying. I am the judge of all. I will judge the church first and then the culture second. This is what the scriptures say. To me, this is a little bit frightening. I mean, he's going to judge us first, the church. Except for us, there's always the mercy rule involved. Man, that's so nice. Verse 26, it says, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And then there's a messianic verse from Psalms chapter 2. He says, uh, verse 27 here, He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I love the song that Randy sang earlier about the morning star. That's us. It's a little bit of eschatology here, which is is a really fancy, you you know, seminary word for end times. When Jesus comes in the end, everything is going to change. 
When Jesus comes at the end, it's going to be radical, you know, it's going to radically alter the course of human history. He will set up a, a kingdom ruling out of Jerusalem for a thousand years. And it says here, he will rule them with an iron scepter. In other words, he is going to make them do what is right. He will completely control global events. Finally, righteousness will be here on earth. Judgment will be here on earth. Justice will be here. And it will be completely free of evil. And what he says to us before he comes is this. When the day comes, I will have a whole army of people who will help me. I want you to be one of those people. Don't bind to what the world is offering. At the very end of of, uh, chapter 19 in Revelation, when Jesus returns, it is not the mercy to save the world. He comes a final time to judge it and rule it. In fact, here in Revelation 19, 11, it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe, dripped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The army of heavens were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Well, we read this and we say, well, who, the army of heaven, uh, you know, who, who is that? That's the church. That's the followers of God. That's the, the, the raptured, holy, sanctified church. This is the people who ride with him. And he says to, you know, the time has come, the world is going to be judged, and everything changes. Verse 28, he says, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the scripture says to the churches. See, the morning star is the first star that rises in the morning. He's saying, Don't sell your soul, be among the first who are persevering. Be, be a part of my army for standing up for what is godly, not whatever mood the country is in at that point. When Jesus looked at the tolerant church, he didn't think it was a good thing. But I also have to say the other side of the coin can be just as bad. The other side of the coin is all things are welcome in our church. We don't want to be intolerant, so everything is welcome. And that can be just as bad. And the flip side is you have to be perfect. You have to follow all these rules to be amongst us. You go to the parades and you, and you pick it. And you show hatred toward others. God hates this. God hates that. Man. God hates homosexuals. You know what? That's a lie. God hates their sin. He doesn't hate them. He wants them to turn to him. See, there's a balance between right and wrong, godly and ungodly. And Jesus knows that we're on this journey and we're going to mess up. We're going to totally just, you know, drop the ball sometimes. And he wants us to come back to him. But he doesn't want the leadership to pull people away from him 
And that's what was happening in the church. You don't, you know, you don't want perfect people, but you don't want hypocrites either. You want people who are trying to overcome their problems and their faults, and they know it. But you don't want the people that have totally given in to sin and given in to the world. We accept them, but not in leadership. We accept them, we pray for them, we help them, because we're messengers of love, not hate. This church of Thyatira had become an all-believers church. Just come on in. No big deal. And God's saying, no. There are some morals, there are some principles, there are some rights in the Bible that I've set down, some fundamentals that you need to know and you need to abide by. And when you don't abide by them, you need to repent of that. That's what I want from my church. I don't want a church that says that all these things that society says is okay is is fine in the church. Because it's not. You can love them, but you don't accept their teachings in the church. Let's pray. Lord, I... I pray that we don't ever get to a point where we accept teachings that are not of you in the church. That we read enough of the word of God that we say, uh, that we know what is right is right and know what is wrong is wrong. We never get to that point where we just say, okay, that's no big deal. But also say, Lord, uh, I, I pray that we love people into the church that if they don't know your teachings, that we accept them into the church and slowly over time that they, they come to see and realize what truth is and we just love them into it, that we don't bash them over the head with the Bible, that we don't scream at them, we don't holler at them, but we love them, we show them the truth that they may come to you. I pray, Lord, that if we ever get to a point where we have things that we shouldn't have within our church, that you show them to us, that we may take care of that, that we not end up like Thyatira, where we accept those. I pray that we, we are like Thyatira in the things that we do, the, the, that we do better, all the things that you praise them for, that we're like that. And I pray that you lead us down that path. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he bless you this week. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.